Welcome to Breaking Green Ceilings, the podcast that amplifies the diverse voices of those who are committed to protecting and sustainably managing our natural environment. I'm your host, Sapna Mulki. Let's get started. This November month of 2020 is the season finale of Breaking Green Ceilings. Season one is coming to an end, y'all. I can't believe it. I've had such amazing guests, and now I have the honor to bring to you Francisco Valenzuela's story. Francisco was recommended to me by my mentor and friend, Dr. Allison Ormsby, as they both served on the board of the Public Use Planning Program Consortium, which is dedicated to holistic approaches to conserving natural and cultural heritage. Francisco recently retired from his position as the Director of Recreation, Tourism, Heritage and Wilderness Resources for more than 22 million acres of national forests and grasslands and national monuments in the Forest Services Southwestern region. He served at the U.S. Forest Service for more than 35 years, and he got to reflect on some of those years in our conversation. We reflected on how he dedicated the majority of his efforts to change the way that national forests engage with communities of color with the intention of encouraging increased racial representation in outdoor recreation. Francisco has conducted extensive research analyzing the racial gap in outdoor recreation in national forests and explains the complexities associated with the disproportionate ethnic use of natural lands. So why is this important? Well, in 2044, for the first time in American history, the United States is expecting to be a majority-minority nation. If recreation professionals are unable to match management techniques with rapid demographic changes in the United States, they risk ignoring and alienating a sizable portion of the population and ultimately becoming less relevant to the public. Keeping to the theme of lack of diversity in the outdoors, we talked also to Francisco about his professional successes in the U.S. Forest Service. This was one of my favorite parts of the conversation because he talked about how there is a deep lack of diversity in the U.S. Forest Service. And so he often had to educate and in some cases, unfortunately, call out colleagues on their biases towards communities of color. Finally, Francisco shared with me his thoughts on why ecology is a white man's problem. This is based on an article written on the same title. You will have to listen to the episode to hear his explanation. When he explained it to me, I was like, of course, why didn't I see it that way? But that's why we have people like Francisco on the podcast. When I think about my conversation with Francisco, I feel so lucky to be able to hear about his fights and triumphs, which eventually paved the way for people like myself to enjoy the outdoors. Granted, we need to do more work to increase representation and accessibility to outdoor recreation. But just imagine what the world would look like if we didn't have people like Francisco who were committed to navigating a system that wasn't built for them and having difficult conversations on our behalf. Just think about that while you listen to the conversation. I hope you enjoy. First of all, I just want to thank you, Francisco, for making time for us on the Breaking Green Ceilings podcast. We typically start with this one question of how did you develop your passion for the natural environment? Well, when I think of the natural environment, I think of the of nature, the larger idea of nature, and just the great diversity of life that's out there. And basically, I developed my passion through play. I played in it. As a little kid, I 
started to have questions about it. I started to explore it. I started typical kid thing, collecting little rocks and saying, oh, what kind of rocks are these? <laughs> and I went on to collecting little animals and little butterflies and then seashells and we'd go to the ocean. My mother, or I think my seventh birthday, gave me this collection of natural history encyclopedia from the yellow set, mm-hmm. which is amazing because my mother was very frugal. And yeah. so I started just like learning all about nature but it wasn't work it was just play and curiosity which is i think natural children when they're out of doors and then my mother would explain to me when a bee stung me that hey the bee has the right to protect itself you should have left it alone every (laughs) creature has its place you know and so you do too right but you have to respect everything and so I, i grew up with kind of this idea that i belonged in nature and it was a safe environment to be in. And so over the years, as I got into like mountaineering and backpacking and climbing, rock climbing and river rat, river floating and stuff like that, I just found nature to be a, just an endless source of enjoyment and beauty and adventure. Okay. And so I guess, how did that translate into your professional development over time? How did you realize that you wanted to pursue conservation or environmental studies as a profession? Well, when I was in uh, high school, I was really good in two specific areas, social science and science, you know, natural science. Yeah. And at that time, I was president of the ecology club for our high school. And I would take other students into the outdoors. And I also took this inner city Hispanic Seventh-day Adventist church group out there. I volunteered as a leader for them. And so I was trying to figure out, of course, like all kids do when they get near the end of their career of high school, what do you do with your life? You know, where do you go? What do you do? Yeah. All of my friends were going straight to college to do study. But I was confused. I didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I decided I'm going to take a year off from going to college. I'm going, much to my parents' disappointment and anger, stay and work. (laughs) And so I stayed in town and I did manual labor. And I thought a lot about life. And and one day I was sick of work, so I skipped out on work and I went into the mountains. And I said to myself, I really love the outdoors. And one of the things that I love about it is what it does to me. It's sort of like uh, another parent. It's sort of like something that's caring and healing for me. And so when I'm in the out of doors, I feel healed. I feel relaxed when I'm having a difficult day. And it gives me time to reflect and things like that. And so I thought, wow, that is a way to help all people on earth is by giving all people the opportunity to get out into nature in a way that allows them to receive the blessings that come from nature. Mm -hmm. And I realized, too, that I loved and wanted to protect the natural world. And so I said to myself, I need a job that combines those two things, caring for the natural world, and then also offering up the natural world people to make it possible for people to go out into the world and enjoy nature without damaging it or hurting it. And in a way, 
so that they could receive the benefits of being in the outdoors. And so that's when I decided to start a career in what's called outdoor recreation management. And I went to Colorado State University to begin to figure out how do you do those two things? How do you help people enjoy the outdoors? And how do you protect nature simultaneously? That's how I got started on this pathway. Right. And so that's one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about is over your professional life, you've been developing sustainable outdoor recreation programs and for various regions from the Caribbean National Forest to Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument. So what considerations go into creating a sustainable outdoor recreation program? Well, one of the things is that who takes care of the natural world? I mean, we've got to talk to the very basic thing. The natural world is under a lot of pressure right now. I mean, global climate change, pollution, extraction of minerals, urbanization, grazing, particularly like in the tropics. And so the world is really demanding a lot. The human world is demanding a lot from the natural world. And so to protect and sustain the natural world, you need people who care about it. You need people who care not just a little bit about it, but a lot about it. People that actually fall in love with it. And so to sustain something, whether it's your family or, or your career or, or anything, you need to put energy into it. And that energy needs to come from a place that's willing to sacrifice and give a little bit to protect it. And so sustainable recreation is this idea that when you receive the benefits of nature, it should be like a cycle you give back to nature. And one of the best ways to protect nature is to set it aside, like in national parks, national forests, grasslands, national monuments, to say to ourselves, you know what, we're going to take these acres and we're not going to develop them. We're not going to cut them all down or transform them into grazing land mm-hmm. or build homes on it, but to set them aside. And we're going to sacrifice a little bit of our income through taxation to protect them. And the job of a recreation person, a stable recreation person, is to begin to develop that cycle, that beneficial cycle. That is basically you get the benefits of the goods of nature and you return those benefits back to nature. And so you develop a relationship of stewardship with the natural world. Nature is not like a playground that's just sitting there. Nature is a living thing. It's like part of our family. It's basically our home where human beings came from. And so some cultures, they call it their mother even. And so how do you take care of your mother? You know, <laughs> you got a lot of benefits from your mom. You should return back and care for her too. Right. And so that's basically the idea of sustainable recreation is that we develop this beneficial cycle with nature. Right. I could see that how you've worked in the forest service is you giving back to Mother Nature. What can people who don't have a profession or a job that's directly related to protection of the natural environment, what can they do when they're outdoors? How can they give back? 
So the first thing is, is if you have a family or you have friends, take them into the outdoors, introduce them into the outdoors. So they begin to develop their own personal relationship with the outdoors. I often meet children in the cities who've never been into a, a national park or even into the mountain. Yeah. They're going to grow up with no relationship to the outdoors. So the first thing is just take them outside into the nature and show them by demonstrating to them what it is all about. Whether or not you are really into the outdoors is your major form of recreation. You don't have to be, but you do have to be cognizant that it's a valuable thing that we need on this planet. And so for the average citizen who doesn't work in the natural resource or environmental field, they need to be a citizen. They need to be an ecological citizen. They need to vote. It's so important that you tell your representatives that this matters to me. These public lands matter to me. And I want you to vote. I want you to fund these parks and forests and protect these lands from damage or fire. And so every citizen can help out. Every citizen can say, this is important to me. And that way, we will save these things for the next generation. Because really, each generation that's out there is handed these things. And we take it for granted. Wow, there are these national parks. Wow, there are all these national forests. They were set aside by people who had a lot of foresight in the past. And so now they're given to us. But just easily, they could be taken away from us and turned mm-hmm. into something else. And so that's a lesson that we need to pass on. That, hey, there's a history here. And hey, we have a role in history. We make our own history. And so yeah. we want a better world. And so we all need to help contribute to that world. Yeah. So I just had a question based on something that you said about how these spaces have been passed down to us and that it's ours and that the people who created these spaces had a lot of foresight. One of the conversations that I've been getting into recently, and that's mainly on social media, is that these spaces were created by white men who. Yes, they wanted to, quote unquote, protect these spaces, but as a consequence, it also led to the extraction of Native Americans from their ancestral homes. So how does one come to terms with that, where perhaps the world would have looked differently if Native American tribes were not pushed out and kind of ravaged in the process of it, to say the least? How can we say that it was passed down to us when sometimes it feels like we stole it? Do you know what I'm saying? I do. It reminds me of like the original sin problem. Here in New Mexico, where I live, we have a lot of Native Americans and we have tribes and pueblos. And I meet with them quite often in my career. And we talk about this issue. And the first thing I do nowadays is I tell everybody these. Public lands are ancestral lands, number one. Sometimes I just say ancestral lands because I think we need to honor the fact that Native people lived on them and Native people stewarded them. And so really 
Native people passed them on because they could have destroyed them. They could have abused them, but they did not. And the second thing is that we need to also make it possible for Native people to utilize these public lands in a special way. And for example, like I was working in Sweden a number of years ago, and I noticed that the Native people of Sweden, they're reindeer herders, and their lifestyle is to take reindeer from the mountains in the summer all the way down to the coast, hundreds of miles in the winter, and then return back to the mountains in the summer. And they still do that to this day because there, their public lands are open to them. They're allowed to use them. And I think our Native people should be given rights, and they do have in some parts of the United States treaty rights to be on public land. And so I think that the challenge is not to erase the sad history, because it is a sad history, but to take history starting now and try to be honest with all the players that were involved and then try to honor their concerns. And most Native people, what they tell me is, while they want more control over the land or want them returned to them, and they understand that in our system, in our society, that's not probably going to happen, the next best thing is they want us to care for them because they're looking out many generations and they know that those lands need to be cared for. And so that's what we can do to help honor them is also care for them and recognize them as ancestral. Yeah. Is there anything that we can do to get Native tribes more involved in the management of these spaces? Yes. I think, first of all, land managers or resource managers around the country, they need to think about tribes every time they make a decision. They need to go and consult with them and ask them, what do you think is appropriate out here? For example, like here, they want to do some oil and gas drilling near Chaco Canyon. And it's a very sacred place for the Native peoples. And they said, no, we don't want that. And so maybe we should respect that. And the other thing is, many of the peaks, the large mountains that we have, the summits are sacred to the Native people. It's a place of worship. So they don't really want us to like build up there, or make a road up there, or put antennas up there. We need to listen to them. And so we need to have laws and regulations, policies, in other words, that make us weigh our decisions with their thoughts in mind, give them a little bit of special status, because they're really independent nations within the United States. And so it's more like talking to a nation, respecting their desires. How wonderful would it be if we could just give them back that land? But like you said, it's probably not going to happen. Unfortunately, I think about that quite a bit. And one of the things is maybe we can have like co management yeah. to that point. And I think yeah. that's possible. Yeah. Is there a reason why it doesn't happen as much as it should? Basically, because there's no policies for that. And there's this idea that since it's basically owned by the federal government, the people that we have ultimate responsibilities for it. And so right now, we don't have the policy frameworks in place to make that happen. But we should, I think. We should do some co-morphal management. You know, another thing that when you were speaking, you said these 
areas were created by white men, which is totally true. Elite white men, rich white men. In some cases, racist. (laughs) Racist men, yes. Who didn't care about Native people. Yeah, and they expressed it very openly. (laughs) They didn't care about Native people and they moved people off. I mean, actually, if you think about it, Central Park in New York City is a kind of like semi-wild place, semi-natural, not quite natural. Black people, African-Americans, used to have a little village in there, and they were pushed off. Yeah. And so one of the criticisms of the system that we have of public lands is they were created by white, racist, rich men for white, rich men. So they're actually like white, elite, privileged spaces. People that didn't fit that categories didn't really belong. And I think we still have a legacy of that to this day. There's a lot of African-Americans I've talked to who tell me they will not go into the woods because bad things happen in the woods. Yes. They have a lot of trauma over that. And so this is not that old either. And so... When they go out on a beach, like around Chicago, the beaches on Lake Michigan, they would be chased down and beat up. And so these spaces, these green spaces, were turned into like white spaces of privilege. And I think it's time that we say that is not the kind of spaces we want to create out there, these very privileged elite spaces. We want to make them more like democratic spaces. More like rainbow spaces, mm-hmm. where everyone is welcome to be out there and safe to be out there. Yeah. And that's a job that doesn't just happen by saying that. Mm-hmm. We have to actually do things to reclaim those spaces and make them spaces for everyone, spaces of diversity. Because nature really loves diversity. We need that diversity of human beings out there. I completely agree with you. So, you know, part of your work has been around sustainable outdoor recreation has been creating diversity, equity, and inclusion at the forefront of these programs. So tell us a little bit about why DEI is important in the context in which, well, you've told us a little bit about why it's important, but if you can tell us about how you have been integrating those principles into the programs that you've led? Well, first of all, from a very practical perspective, we live in a democracy. And we're living in a country that's becoming more and more diverse every year. Mm-hmm. In a generation, this will be a country in which the minority population, all of them added together, will be in the majority. And so these citizens will vote. Now, If they didn't grow up loving nature and caring for nature and having a relationship with nature, they could easily vote to get rid of it. And so that's a very practical aspect for those people who care about nature is the citizens who vote need to care about it if we're going to have them move forward. So in that very practical reason, we need diversity now. We need to focus a lot of energy on families and children now to invite them in, to open the gate, to welcome them in their own languages, 
and to ask them the question, how can we help you? How can we help you enjoy this place? And so inclusion is sort of like, in my mind, as it relates to outdoors, sort of like a community garden. We set aside this space here and we want it to be used by the entire community and we want the entire community to plant seed and we want the entire community to get the bounty that comes from their gardens and enjoy that bounty and support the community garden. And nature is like the ultimate garden. It's the Eden of planet. And so those two, we want people to come, the whole community to come, to go in there and plant seeds. This is a different kind of seed they're planting. It's a seed that generates care and support and stewardship for the very nature itself. So they and their children and their children's children could all gain the benefits of this natural world. But if we don't open that gate and we don't invite them in and we don't become inclusive, then what we have is this precious thing that is almost anti-diversity, anti-inclusion. And I think we'll see no support for that kind of world in our future. And so it's threatened by that. So how can we then get people into these national parks, given that you mentioned there have been violent events that have happened in these spaces? It's also, like you said, it's elitist, so therefore it's not cheap getting in or even planning for it or even knowing what to do once you get there. That takes resources. So... How can we break down those barriers for these people? Well, there's several sides to this. First of all, there's the government and what is their role. And I think their role should be reaching out and providing information through websites, publications, signage on our public lands that makes it clear that it is for everyone. And then I think. It's up to government to keep it something that's not expensive, to not begin to separate people based on income. And I think of Martin Luther King near the end of his life, he started to talk about poor people's marches because he started seeing that a lot of this problems in America were based on income or class. And so I think that now you're starting to see our national parks cost a lot of money to enter. You're seeing the Forest Service charging a lot of money to camp. And so what's happening is it's starting to be based on economic class. And we don't have a country where the majority of the people are wealthy. The majority of the people are just barely holding on. And likewise, again, if they never go to the out of doors and enjoy their national parks and forests and grasslands, well, it's really unfair for them to be paying taxes that go to those things that they never get to enjoy. And so we have elitism based on income then. And so it's up to the citizens to say to the government, no, that's not appropriate. No, you're creating economic barriers. To the poor. And who needs the outdoors most? If you're wealthy, you can get on a plane and go to Alaska. You can go to Iceland. You can go to Sweden. That's what these people do. 
They have the money to go anywhere in the world they want. They can go to Costa Rica and look at monkeys. But most people can only drive an hour or two from their home because gas costs money. So there needs to be things close in that are inexpensive, beautiful, well taken care of, and welcoming to them. Now, what's also really cool, what's going on right now, is there's a lot of groups for you know Hispanic, for African-Americans, for sexual diversity. They're saying, you know what? We can't wait for that. We're going to develop our own websites, our own communities, and we're going to reach out. And it's really cool. Like here in New Mexico, we passed a bill in our state that provided some funding to go to these groups to bring more diversity into the out of doors. And so all of these groups are joining in because you get the feeling like, well, you have to look like the people on the cover of the magazine, really fit and thin and white, wearing spandex and all kinds of <laughs> clothes. That's crazy. The outdoors is for everybody. And you don't have to have all these fancy clothes. You can have your whatever relaxed play clothes and be out there and be good. You don't have to be skinny. You can be whatever weight you want to be. Be good for your health no matter what. And so the outdoors doesn't care what you look like. Doesn't care how fit you are. It doesn't care what your background is. It's like the sun. It gives to all equally. But there's a need for us to help our brothers and sisters know how to do it, right? Because it's a social thing you learn. You don't like wake up in the morning and say, tomorrow I'm going to climb Mount Everest. You, know? <laughs> you don't do that. It's a social thing. And so recently we see so many white people and so few minorities in the out of doors is that for generations, parents have been teaching their children how to camp, how to hike, how to fish, how to ski, downhill ski. And where's our generation? You know, a lot of parents, they're working their butts off. They can't mm-hmm. teaching their children how to do all that. They haven't done it. So they're kind of a little afraid. They don't know what's going to go on out there. And so what we need to do is we need leadership. Once again, a rainbow of leadership to say, hey, I want to help take people in the out of doors. What's really amazing to me is working here with Native Americans is Native Americans, we think of, you know, they live in the outdoors. Well, really, they don't. They, they yeah. live in cities. And they've been kind of estranged from the outdoors, too. And so Native Americans are starting to take their kids camping and starting to take their kids on hikes and starting to teach them because they realize that they were losing that connection to the mm-hmm. outdoors. And so that's what we can do. We can just support these groups, support their efforts to begin to make it part of our culture. Our right. culture can evolve and expand as well. Yeah. This kind of speaks to an article that I read that you wrote where you were discussing how the use of the phrase outdoor recreation is problematic. I can say I felt it, but I didn't know how to articulate it. But I think your article does a very good job of it. So could you tell us why that phrase is problematic? 
Well, <laughs> there's different sides to the problem of that phrase. One is, of course, like when I worked for the government, they're trying to use tax dollars on serious things. And so here we have this unserious sounding thing called outdoor recreation. It's like, why should the government be involved in something like that? I mean, what is that? <laughs> and, but they don't realize that outdoor recreation is like almost like healthcare. I worked with this group who had prescription hikes. They would actually give these books to doctors. And when their clients came in, they would give them a book and say, you know what? And a little prescription, they'd write out and say, you need to go on hikes. You need to go on walks. And here's a book, and I want you to do 10 of them. Because they find out that doing 10 hikes is a lot better than taking stress medication. Doing those hikes are a lot better than taking statins for your blood pressure. That is healthcare. And the other thing is that outdoor recreation, there's a lot of people that go into the outdoors and they do things like collect pinions around here and firewood. And is that outdoor recreation? It's not totally recreating. It's not totally leisure. But it is building a relationship with the outdoors. And so outdoor recreation is kind of a limiting kind of term because the real thing we're talking about is this sense of relationship and engagement with the outdoors. What I do like about the term, though, is that I do think play is important, too. I mean, I think kids, like being a kid, they should be playing. Adults should play. You know, everything doesn't have to be goal-oriented. I think that's been proven to be very helpful for people. And it's an easy way to look at beginnings of a relationship with nature. But in sustainable recreation, we want people to go beyond recreating to stewardship. And that takes a few more steps. Start off by play, just like kids do. That's a good way to begin. Yeah. So this is like another question, which I think maybe the moment has passed to ask it, but I'm still curious about, which is another article you you say that ecology is a white man's problem. I really like that phrase <laughs> because it just brings, for me at least, somebody who grew up in Africa, like this spoke to me because the white man through colonization created a lot of problems for us in Africa and problems that are systemic. And sometimes it feels like we can't undo it. And so when I read that, I felt like this is really a topic that needs to be discussed more. So yeah, if you can tell us about what you were thinking when you were saying that ecology is a white man's problem. Yes, I know that title is kind of like controversial. And, That's uh, what's so good. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in my career, I've worked with a lot of quote ecologists and environmental organizations like Sierra Club, the Wilderness Society, and others. And they're concerned about ecology. So they tell me, okay, hey, there's all these ecological problems. And I'm like, what are the problems? And they start telling me their problems. And what I realized was what they're telling me is that things aren't the way they want for themselves. <laughs> and being the fact that all of those organizations are filled with white people, 
all the problems they come up with became, in my mind, white people's problems about ecology. Now, when you go to like four parts of the country and you start talking to them about ecological problems, you know, they're worried about lead in their water, for example. Like if you were in Upper Michigan yeah. or you're in parts of the, you know, Georgia and you're living next to smelting factories, you're worried about air quality. And so minority people across the United States, and I and I'll add poor, and much much of the poor is white, they have ecological problems of their own nature, but they were not the ones that the white people were bringing up. They were bringing up kind of like, I don't know, boutique ecological problems. <laughs> and so ecology is a white person's problem because they're concerned about how it affects them as white people. And ecology does not have boundaries. There's not a, a line around ecology. The planet is one living ecosystem. And so when you start messing with the natural world, you cross the line all over the place and you affect everybody. And so really ecology is everyone's concern and everyone's problem. But it seems like those problems are not articulated. And so minority communities rights started working on this thing called environmental justice. And they started saying, hey, this is unfair. It's unfair that the poor have to deal with all this ecological toxicity, all the stuff that we're dumping, the stuff we dump into the water, the stuff we dump into the air, the stuff we dump on the land. Why does the poor have to be the ones that carry the burden of that? And so people are starting to say, you know, we need some sort of environmental justice. Environmental justice is kind of like looking at the dark side of ecology, all the bad stuff, and saying it's not fair for us to deal with those burdens. And I totally agree. And it, it's totally true. There's been plenty of studies that show that that is the situation. White people when they begin to talk about those things as ecological problems, then you start making ecology everyone's problem. That's when it becomes everyone's problem. As long as they're only talking about how it affects them, it's a white person's problem. But the other side of the coin is in the area of recreation and enjoyment of the outdoor. Right now, outdoor recreation actually is a white person's problem. If you go to the websites, you look at the photos of everybody out there, there's a bunch of white people complaining about things in the out of door. I can't get my $50,000 RV into this camping spot. I can't take my rock climbing stuff over here. I can't do my river rafting here. I can't go to the Woolens, which is like 98% white. I can't do all these things. Outdoor recreation is a white person's problem. <laughs> <laughs> and they complain about it being crowded. Yeah. And when they complain about New people, they start talking about people who don't belong. Who are those people? They're the new people. And so the other side of ecological justice, environmental justice, should be the positive side, which is getting people in the outdoors and getting people to get the benefit of outdoors. We need both sides of the environmental justice picture. And we need outdoor recreation to be, lack of it, to be everyone's problem instead of a white person's problem. And so I wrote that paper trying to say that obviously ecology is everyone's problem, but not in the, 
dialogue, conversation, and social concern that's going on. And so these people, like the Sierra Clubs of the world, are starting to now begin to talk about diversity and inclusion. Mm -hmm. REI is beginning to talk about diversity and inclusion because they're a store. And as the world becomes more diverse, they need diverse customers. And so we're slowly moving in this direction so that we can all share in the benefits and in the costs that relate to our environment instead of it just being a white person's problem. And hopefully the poor people have to pay for it. That's just not right. Yeah, that makes complete total sense. <laughs> Looking at it from that perspective, I guess I don't have anything else to add to it because it's sort of just what we deal with on a daily basis as environmental professionals is that we're solving these seemingly environmental problems that are ultimately going to benefit majority of the white community. And case in point is I was talking to a former superintendent at the California State Park System, and he said that when he used to take mostly African-American kids out to these parks, sometimes they'd do cleanups and they'd be like, Mr. Shu, why are we cleaning up this space for the white folk? Why aren't they doing it themselves? And he was like, that's just the way it is. I'm sorry. So in California, I was asked by the Los Angeles National Forest to go down and look at a problem. And so I was in, at Mount St. Helens National Volcanic Monument and I flew down to California and I went down and they have a river. And along the riverbanks, there was a lot of Hispanics in the water. And you could go up, look up and down the river and see all these thousand Hispanic families in the water. And so they said, Francisco, look at this horrible problem that we have. Oh my gosh. All these Hispanics in the water, they're destroying the environment. Look at all that. What do you think, Francisco? And I said, I don't know. And they said, can you explain the problem to us? I looked at this and I couldn't see a problem. And so I had to think about it. So I left that meeting and I went to this big national conference on social science and natural resources. And there was a lot of researchers there. And I said, I showed them slides of all these people. I said, they asked me to tell them what the problem is. And I couldn't do it. Could you help me? And these people, you know, are smarter than me and knowledgeable. And so they looked at the slides. And one of the professors from Yale, I believe, he said, the problem is, is that they're not white people. That's the problem. And then he said, let me add another problem. There's no white people playing in the water. What's wrong with white people? And so <laughs> <laughs> the room went silent. Because it was such an insight. Because, of course, if they were white people, there would be all kinds of picnic areas and parking spots and facilities for them. They would not be that problem. And so minority people get blamed for these environmental problems because they're minority people, not because they're people. <laughs> yeah, we're just not seen as human beings. No. This just reminded me of a recent experience and then we can move on is I lived in Austin, Texas, and there's a very popular spring there. It's called Barton Springs. And I would go there from time to time. And this time I had family in town and I was like, 
it's really hot. It's summer in Texas. Let's go to Barton Springs. And I noticed that all the brown folk were on the shallow side of the pool. Whereas all the white folk were on the deeper side of the pool. And they were also diving and I don't know, like doing deep underwater, like swimming and stuff like that. And I was like, hmm, there's something wrong with this picture here. And my conclusion is that minority communities are for the most part denied access to resources that would allow them to learn how to swim. So like public pools, for example. And so maybe that is why most of the brown folk were on the shallow side because they didn't know how to swim and maybe because their own local communities didn't have public pools where they could learn how to swim. You know, that's a real good insight you have there because that's true. When I was growing up in El Paso, Texas, a little kid, uh, brown people could only go to the pool on Sundays right before they drain the water out and put new water in for the rest of the week. Mm. So they didn't get very much opportunity. This was true across the nation. And then if you look at junior high swimming programs, some, the, when I, we moved to Colorado and I went to live in a much more affluent neighborhood, guess what? They had swimming programs. And you as a student got to go to them. Well, what about the poor side of town? Did they have swimming programs? No. And so what happens is so weird because then they do studies of us and they say, they ask adults, do you want a swimming pool? The adults are like, no, because I, number one, I don't swim. And number two, I don't want my children to drown. Right. And so then they say, minority people don't like to swim. So that's why they're not there. Afraid of water. They're afraid of water. <laughs> but they don't unravel the fact that we got here somehow. Yeah. The reason that we're here today with very low minority use of outdoor recreation areas and pools and springs it's because they did not have the opportunities to learn how to enjoy them. So you're totally right on that. Yeah, I don't know if I was internalizing that experience too much or what, but just hearing you explain kind of like the exclusion of people of color in these natural spaces, it just made me think of that one moment where something didn't seem right in a way. But I don't know if that is the situation again. So. Don't send me hate mail. <laughs> so, you know, you've spent 30 years of your professional life within the Forest Service. And you mentioned that, I mean, you moved up the ranks into influential positions and ended up as a director of recreation for the Southwestern region as a Hispanic man, as you identify, and you held that position for 10 years. So... How did people feel when you wrote papers like with the title, Ecology is a White Man's Problem? <laughs> How'd they feel about that? <laughs> There's two things that go on. Number one is that people look at me, you know, they look at you, and I'm in a position of power now. Some people think, he got that position because he's a minority. He doesn't really know anything. And so... There is a little bit in federal government of this tokenism to take people and put them in positions of power, even though they're not really totally competent because of their race. And so 
the first thing I had to do, usually in meetings and so forth, was to prove that I'm actually confident and knowledgeable and actually an international leader in this program. That at times felt very painful. Secondly, for me to talk about things like institutional racism, very difficult because number one, we're and the force is an extreme denial of that. So I talked to my, my boss about it one day, and I said, you know, the problem is that this institutional racism going on here. And he goes, we can't talk about it. That's something we cannot talk about. We can talk about individual cases of racism. We cannot talk about institutional racism. Individual cases of racism is like a Band-Aid approach to a cancer treatment. You know, we need to look at this bigger picture. So when I work with other minority employees, I stress to them that you are not, and I will not move somebody into a higher position unless you're confident. Because I don't want people to look at minority people getting their position because they're minority people. I want them to be the best. And so you need it's to be unfair, twice though. <laughs> it's totally unfair. But you need to be twice as good. And then the second thing is, when I would bring up issues related to acts of racism, I'd get two kinds of responses. Number one, no, it's not true. Denial. Mm-hmm. Like one of my bosses, I had three bosses. So one of my bosses came into my office one day and he says, Francisco, I went picnicking at one of our picnic areas. And at the picnic area were all these Hispanics. And they were playing Mexican music. And we didn't like it. Could you do something about it? Could you make sure that this doesn't happen again? What? <laughs> and I was like, let me see here. And this is this white guy. You know, it's like powerful white guy. And it's like, you're telling me to tell these Hispanic people that they cannot recreate the way they want to recreate. Because it upsets you as a white person who's in the minority in the campground to begin with. So you want me to make all of their experience negative, to make them feel unwelcome so that you could feel good. Yeah. You know, that's privilege, white privilege. I mean, screaming out. And then I turned to him and said, you're a racist. And he <laughs> jumped up in his chair and goes, I am not racist. And he runs out the room. Just runs. You know, because <laughs> they can't deal with it. Can't yeah. deal with it. And we had another case in a place called Fossil Creek in Arizona where I said, told the forest, your policies are reducing historic uses by Hispanic people by 50%, cutting it in half. And that's not a good thing. And they were like, no, that's not true. The lack of acceptance of racism, denial, is so great to overcome. And I think it's because they sort of like internalize it personally. Like, I am too good a person to be a racist. I'm too good. I mean, look at me. I'm a good person. I can't be doing that. That's impossible for me to do it. It's totally impossible. I can't do it. So you must be wrong. (laughs) Yeah. You're seeing me in the wrong light. This is not who I am. This is not exactly like one day I was supposed to give a talk and it was going to be recorded for National Hispanic Week for a month in the Forest Service. And I said, my talk, I said, 
I want to welcome everybody to the you know, Hispanic Southwest. Because after all, it was part of Mexico. Mm-hmm. Colorado is part of Mexico. Arizona is part of Mexico. And it was Mexico all part of Spain. Is a part of- <laughs> it was all part of Spain. And yeah. I was told, I cannot say those words. I was not allowed to record my message saying Hispanic Southwest. But if I were to say the New England states, they would say, yes, you could say the New England states, right? Because England landed the Plymouth, the Pilgrims, and all that. You could say the New England states, but you can't say the Hispanic Southwest. Yeah. Wow. I'll just take a moment to sit in this. (laughs) So even though I raised up to a position of more influence, I still was edited. I was still considered to be questionable. Yeah. But that goes with the territory. And I mean, I think that is what I like to think of people who go, minority people, people who are different, who go into natural resource management, go into these fields. I want them to bring their difference to the table. I want them to bring their diversity, their different perspective to the table. To me, that's what makes them valuable. I value that different perspective. It's a difficult situation because diversity is not going to apply if diversity doesn't see diversity, right? But then there's also this issue of the next challenge, okay, if diversity applies, gets in, the next challenge is assimilating into a racist institution. So how do you sell that? Make the business case. Is it worth it? (laughs) You're absolutely right because these agencies like Park Service and the Forest Service have very strong culture. And so new employees, the first thing they do is they want to assimilate you so that you become one of their tribal members. You speak their language even. You hold their values. And so I met a lot of people of color who work for the Forest Service who basically have been assimilated. They no longer have any diversity. To me, they're like non-diverse now because they realize that the path of success required assimilation. And I think to a degree they're correct that if you want an easy path, you want to simulate. And I think American minority groups that have come to America had to make that decision too. Can you still be Italian? Can you still be Irish? Can you still be Mexican? Can you still be African? Or do you give it all up and assimilate? And I think we all know people who've done that. They've given up their culture. Yeah. But then what do we get? What do we get from that? We, maybe the wheels of cooperation are smoother, more lubricated. There's no sudden fear that we'll say something and you will disagree with me because we already know, we already pre-agree anyway. But the business case for having diversity, in government at least, is that the law says we're supposed to serve everybody. The law, I mean, this is not like the agency. This is basic government law. Basic government theory is that the government collects taxes from all of its citizens, and its job is to return those benefits equally to all of its citizens. That's what it's supposed to do. And so when you have an agency dominated by an elite 
non-diverse group, what they tend to do is return those benefits back to that elite dominant group. That's who they serve. So meanwhile, while they're doing that, the rest of the world moves on. And pretty soon they become irrelevant. That agency becomes irrelevant. One time I was in Idaho driving around and we went to a little restaurant mom's place something like that and i tell you mom's place you're never supposed to do that but i couldn't help myself so i went in to mom's place and their particular specialty was cow's liver and onions when i moved from puerto rico back to america one of the first things they went to missouri and the people of the forest took me to a restaurant which that's what they served and so i was like there everybody's wearing their overall stuff so i went in there and it was exotic, very exotic food. <laughs> and so when I went into this restaurant, I said, okay, I'm going to have your special, the cow's liver. They brought it out. It was good for what it is. And I asked to speak to the owner. And this woman came out and, I, and she goes, I said, oh, I was kind of surprised because she was fairly young. And I said, oh, I thought this had been around a long time. And this is a traditional thing. And she goes, yeah, it had been around a long time. But what happened in town is there was a Chinese restaurant open down the street and a Mexican restaurant open down the street and an Italian restaurant open down the street. And I was thinking to myself, this is like the diversity of America, you know? All these other foods were opening around and nobody was coming into this restaurant to eat cows liver anymore. The white restaurant with the white food. And so the restaurant was going out of business. And so this woman comes over, she buys the restaurant from the owner because the restaurant was going broke. And so then she said to me, I kept this on the menu because this is a specialty of the restaurant. But then I added all these other things because I want this to appeal to a diversity of people and young people. And cow's liver and onions doesn't do it. And so... She said, what I love is people coming into the door and coming back. And they're getting what they want. And they have an enjoyable meal. If you think about that, the outdoors is kind of like that too. If the outdoors is being designed for liver and onion type people, and there's less and less of those people, and they're competing with the Italian restaurant and the Chinese restaurant and the Mexican restaurant and going out of business, then these Public lands are going to go out of business. So we need you, we need the diversity of the people to join in and drag these organizations kicking and screaming into serving everyone. And that's not an easy job. So I say assimilate enough to be functional and communicate. Learn what needs to be learned, but do not give up on the core of who you are, because we need that core to make change. Otherwise, you're no longer a change agent. All you are is like you're going along to get along. Yeah. I guess the thing is, nobody said this would be easy. And if we want to make some space for ourselves, then we have to, for lack of a better term, fight for it. Just like every other community has had to do. Like you said, the Italians, the Irish, the Czechs, they had to fight for something. They had to make space for themselves, right? 
Madeline Albright wouldn't be where she was if she just was complacent, right? And she's of Czech heritage, first generation. So yes, it's unfortunate. But what I'm learning is you either keep the fight going and you might come out with some trauma, but hopefully you'll come out triumphant or you make the choice of you don't want to take this. You don't feel like you need to deal with this kind of, I don't know, isolation or exclusion, create something of your own or join the environmental justice movement, (laughs) which is becoming more relevant. And eventually those conversations will end up coming, I think, to the National Park Service as well as to the Forest Service. So that said, it sounds like what you're saying is like there's a multi-pronged approach that we can take, really. Yes, I think so. I mean, a citizen can can push from the citizen perspective. You can push. Everyone can push. If you get inside the system, if you assimilate enough and become kind of like an ally inside the system to that change, then you can make certain kind of changes that somebody on the outside can't make. If you're in the university system and you're doing research, studying recreation, people's use of the outdoors and politics, you can make a change by adding information and knowledge that helps make change possible. So there's all these different perspectives. And if you're a user, you're out in the outdoors and you come across racism, (laughs) maybe unintentional, you put your foot down. A little bit of trouble, right? A little bit of good trouble. It's a good thing. And so you give these organizations out there a little bit of trouble to nudge them in the right direction. So that's how we're going to make change. But I don't want people to die in the process of this thing. I don't want you to go into an organization and think, I'm going to make all this change. You go in there and get your butt stopped. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, with all within reason, right? All within reason. You got to have that judgment. When do you stand up for something? But remember, if you die, you can't continue to fight. And so you got to remember that. Yeah. And I think the important thing is, yes, you can go in with good intentions and with a lot of energy. And if you realize along the way that this is just not for you, just know that. Don't feel like you failed or don't feel ashamed and put down your weapons and walk the other way and find some other battlefields, you know? Exactly. Yeah. So that's interesting. I wish I could, well, I would like to talk to you some more about your experiences of of assimilation and kind of how you navigated through some like sensitive moments. I wonder how it turned out when you called your boss a racist and he ran out. Were there any ramifications? I mean, I don't think so because you stayed in the position 10 years. So, or if it was at a lower, at another time when you were at a quote unquote lower rank, then you rose up. So that's true. It didn't matter. I think the only ramification was that he, I think, was embarrassed and had trouble talking to me afterward. But I don't think that's bad. He should be embarrassed. Yeah. That's not cool, you know. It's not cool. Think about what you've said. (laughs) But I mean, that to say is like, even as people of color, we hold our own prejudices. It's not to say that just because we've had unique experiences that we don't hold any kind of bias or prejudice towards our own, or people with other skin tones? I think all of us are prejudiced in some way. 
it's that, I guess, it's that self-questioning that we need to be doing. You know, yeah. asking that simple kind of like question is, am I treating this person the way I want to be treated? Am I making the kind of assumptions about the person that I would want them to make about me? Yeah, minority people are definitely not perfect people. Definitely a lot of racist minority people. And you yeah. know, the, the really sad thing for me is there are people of color who have some self-hatred. That is the, the hardest thing to deal with when they think to themselves, hey, maybe I deserve this racism. Mm. Maybe I'm not as good. Yeah. And I think that also comes from like culture, the culture that you've grown up in. I think I at least find that more in South Asian and East Asian culture where it's more of keep your head down, do the work, don't rock the boat kind of thing. And if you're blamed for something, then maybe it's truly your fault. Like there's only one side to it and it's your fault (laughs) kind of thing. Anyway, so I'd like for us to get into the lightning round here, switching gears. So I have a series of four questions and they're all about racism. No, I'm kidding. (laughs) Uh, No, they're more holistic, happy questions. So the first question here is, what have you read, heard, or watched that has influenced you the most? That is a very hard question because I read a lot and I've been influenced by a lot of different people over time. When I was a little kid, I met Cesar Chavez and Dolores Huerta, and uh, I watched them be super brave, particularly Dolores Huerta. I think she's like one of the bravest women I've ever met. So I was heavily influenced, inspired by them about what our responsibility is, that we have responsibility to other people to help make the world a better place. And I've tried to live up to some of that. I don't feel I did anything compared to what they did, but I feel like I did what I could do to that end. Yeah. What an honor. I wish I was a fly on the wall or even born at that time. What's a personal habit that has helped you significantly in your work? Personal habit is constant learner. What I try to do every single day was set aside an hour of my work for learning. And so I would go to a coffee shop, read for an hour normally, read a paper for an hour, take a webinar. One hour a day was to get become better. And so in a year, I would read like 50 books in a year. Yes. And so... Then you become like the smart kid in the room. <laughs> so mm-hmm. good can happen when you know all this stuff. Indeed. So usually I ask people, what's the best piece of advice you've received? But you're entering a new phase in your life. And I'm sure you've given a lot of good advice as a manager. So what's the best piece of advice you've given? <laughs> well, it's kind of along the lines of the best piece of advice I've been given. But it's not an easy of advice at the heart of advice. And that is don't take things personally. When people talk to you, when they criticize you, sometimes they're really coming from a place of their own fragility and fear, not from a place you need to be at. So at work and in life in general, you're going to come across a lot of criticism. 
don't take it personally. Don't become to say, oh, I guess that's who I am. They tell me that I'm not capable. Do I take that personally? Or do I look at it harder and say, what about it is true? What about it is not true? And so I think if you're going to succeed and let these criticisms roll off your back, you can't let them enter your skin. You can't let them come inside. And so they're important pieces of information for you to contemplate, but not to swallow because they can destroy you. They'll get into your dreams and they'll crush them. And so don't let that happen. I really like that. They're pieces of information that you can contemplate on. I like that. What is your superpower? My superpower is that my spirit animal is a mule. <laughs> They're so cute, though. And hard workers. <laughs> exactly. That's not my superpower. When it, I can outwork almost anybody. And so if I can't outthink them, I will work. Yeah. I will work. One time I spent three days in the office without leaving it because I wanted to get something accomplished. And so by being spending that much hard work, I was able to do something that people thought was impossible. Once again, I think about all those migrant farm workers and the amount of work they do just to feed their families. Yeah. Well, when you become a professional, think about that. Bend over, pick those vegetables, work under the hot sun. Put that kind of energy toward what you do professionally. And you can do anything. So, yes, hard work is my superpower. It's a good one. All right. So our conversation has come to an end. And I'm sure people will want to follow you. So how can we follow you on your journey? Well, I do have a LinkedIn site, LinkedIn membership. So I do post papers and articles there. Okay. So I think that is basically the the best way to follow me right now, the easiest way. And if you want to communicate with me, you can do that. If you're trying to apply for work to get in one of our federal agencies and you want somebody to help you review maybe your resume or talk to you about it, I'll be there for you. And so that's a good way. Okay. Well, that's very thoughtful of you. Thank you. (laughs) I hope somebody listens or takes you up on your offer. Is there anything else you'd like to add? Yes. Care for yourself, right? This is a very hard time in in society in America and the world. Take care of yourself. And one of the best things you can do for yourself is to go outside and let the sun and the wind caress your body and look at the beauty that we live in. And that'll actually help your immune system while while you're doing it. So do that. Make yourself strong. Inside and out. <laughs> yeah. I should go in and add for the National Park Service or Forest Service. Go out and you'll be strong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, thank you again, Francisco. This has been such a fun and a very insightful conversation. So thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. But what you do, you do amazing things. I began to realize how hard these are to get done and you try to produce so many of them. Yeah, once a week. You're an amazing person. (laughs) Oh, thank you. Thank you. It's that mule-like obstinate as a mule, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe that the obstinate, I think, is a British word. I don't know. But yes, I try to be that mule. (laughs) 
And you'll win in the end. Yes. At it. Hey, all Thanks for listening to Breaking Green Ceilings. If you'd like to hear more episodes with change-making environmentalists, head on over to watersavvysolutions.com backslash podcast. You can find me online on Instagram and Twitter. And as always, if you love the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and like on iTunes. You can also sign up for my newsletter to find out when new episodes are available. And please do share the podcast with your family, friends, colleagues, and whoever you think will be inspired by the wisdom of our change makers. I always welcome feedback, so please do feel free to reach out to me. My contact information is also on watersavvysolutions.com. Until next time, keep breaking through those green ceilings.